0: I'm Betsy Kim. President Donald Trump and his infamous tweets. If recently you've been anywhere near a newspaper or news outlet, you know those tweets are in the news again. Earlier this week, the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University sent President Trump a letter requesting he stop blocking Twitter accounts which have criticized or mocked him. The Institute is a nonpartisan not-for-profit organization that defends the freedoms of speech and press in the digital age through strategic litigation, research, and public education. I'm on the phone with Alex Abdo, a senior staff attorney at the Ninth First Amendment Institute. Mr. Abdo, welcome to Law, Life, and Culture.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Betsy.
0: So in terms of public policy, why did you, Knight Institute Director Jamil Jaffer and Knight Institute Senior Attorney Katie Fallow write this letter to Donald Trump, copying Sean Spicer, White House Counsel Don McGahn, and White House Director of Social Media Dan Scavino?
1: Well, you know the basic reasoning behind the letter is actually quite simple. It's that more and more, society's forums for public discourse are moving online. Uh, and it's critical that the traditional freedoms of speech and the press follow those conversations online. Um, You know, our First Amendment was written in an analog era, but we now live in a digital one. uh, And we need to find out how to reconcile the two. And our hope is that uh, the letter that we sent and and any possible litigation that we file uh, to enforce it will be a step in that direction of modernizing the First Amendment for the digital age.
0: In legal terms, Why does the First Amendment prohibit Donald Trump from blocking certain Twitter users?
1: Well, it's a bit of a complicated claim, but I I think I can explain it uh, most simply this way, which is that uh, when the government opens up a space uh, for expressive activity, uh, it sacrifices certain uh, abilities. Uh, It can no longer kick people out of that space uh, on the basis of their viewpoint. Uh, And the argument that we make in the letter is that the president, in using his Twitter account the way that he uses it, uh, as uh, in the words of his press secretary, the official statements of the presidency, he has opened up a space uh, for the public to engage with his comments. Uh, And that is, in fact, what happens. Every tweet that the president posts elicits thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of comments on Twitter. Uh, You know, there's really a Uh, an extraordinarily, uh, uh, you know, rich conversation that surrounds each one of these tweets. Uh, And that conversation, uh, you know, is protected by the First Amendment from viewpoint discrimination from the government. Uh, And so the argument is that the president cannot exclude people from that, that conversation on the basis of their views, their politics, for example, or they voted for or what they think about particular political questions.
0: Now, I've never been blocked on Twitter, so I'm not exactly sure how blocking works and what it exactly does.
1: Yeah, you, so there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, most people are probably familiar with the first thing that it does, which is uh, uh, it prevents you from seeing somebody's tweets, uh, at least while you're logged in as yourself. If you're, if you're logged in as a user who is blocked by some other user, Uh, You cannot see that other users' uh, tweets. Uh, You can't see the conversations that they're engaging in and the like. Now, if you log out from your account and you just are on Twitter uh, generically, but not as a particular person, uh, then you can see everyone's tweets, including somebody who's blocked you. Uh, 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 The second thing, though, that blocking does, uh, which I think goes more to the heart of our concern, our First Amendment concern, is that uh, when you're blocked, you cannot participate in those common threads that, you know, what I was just describing a minute ago, you cannot uh, respond to the person who's blocked you or engage, uh, uh, you know, others in the give and take that happens uh, in that thread. Uh, and that's a different kind of harm because you're kept out of the conversation. Uh, you, you can't, you know, uh, share your responses with your followers. You can't voice your concerns, criticize uh, the policies being expressed in this, you know, unique and novel digital forum.
0: Now I read in the multiple news accounts about one of the Twitter account users, Holly O'Reilly, whose Twitter handle is Ayn Rand Paul Ryan. Perhaps depending on one's political beliefs, many people may find her tweets entertaining. But can you describe what some of her tweets said and why they are protected by the First Amendment?
1: She's a you know, she is a, a fairly vocal critic of the president. I believe that the, the final You know, the tweet that appears to have gotten her blocked was one in which she uh, uh, put a clipping of a picture showing uh, the president next to the Pope uh, with a kind of uncomfortable look on the Pope's face, Uh, and she said something like, this is how the rest of us see you. Uh, So, you know, it's certainly a provocative tweet. It's one that expresses a pretty clear viewpoint that she has, Um, but it's one ultimately that expresses a political viewpoint. Uh, And if so, you agree with us that, the president's comment threads uh, on Twitter are these sorts of public fora that the public is entitled to, to debate on. Then this is a classic kind of viewpoint discrimination that uh, you know that the First Amendment uh, prevents, and that's you know one of the bedrock principles of the First Amendment. Uh, you know, if you if you study any First Amendment law, uh, the first thing that you will invariably learn. Uh, is that if if there were only one rule, it's that there's no viewpoint discrimination under the First Amendment. And that's what this would be.
0: What about the argument that Ms. O'Reilly has 77,000 followers and she can still um, pull up and read at real Donald Trump tweets and then add that handle to her own tweets, although... That tweet won't come up on his feed. Her followers can still see what she has to say to Donald Trump. That she still has other avenues to express herself. Is it still violative of the First Amendment because she is getting shut out from Donald Trump's uh, feed?
1: It is. She's being you know she's being kept out of the primary place where uh, uh, Twitter users. You know, debate the president's tweets. The place where they debate them are in the comment threads to those very tweets. Uh, you know, let me give you, let me give you a real world example. Uh, you know, uh, anyone can uh, picket near the town hall of, of their uh, of, of their city. They can uh, reach people going in and out. They can hand out pamphlets. They can get their message across. Uh, but if you were to allow, you know, the the city board to exclude them from town hall meetings, which are some of the kind of classic First Amendment forums. Uh, that would be depriving them of access to uh, an important space, and, and it's it's not enough to say that they have alternatives, uh, because those alternatives are not are not quite the same.
0: Okay, so I think that argument or analogy that you drew would also apply to any um, attorney's uh, possible argument that. Donald Trump should be able to use the at real Donald Trump Twitter account as his personal account, but agree to treat the at POTUS account as a designated public forum. I, I think your analogy um, would apply to that argument as well.
1: Yeah, and, and there is, you know, I think the most uh, serious counterargument that one could make to our position uh, is that the president – uh, is a person, too, with, with First Amendment free speech rights, uh, and he is entitled to decide who he associates with in his private life. Uh, and, and that is, uh, at a general level, unquestionably true. President Trump has First Amendment rights. He has a right to choose who he associates with. Uh, and the real question is, uh, is his account, which you know was created before he became president, it, it was created when he was a private individual, so is that personally created account Uh, a, you know, what is called in First Amendment law a designated public forum? Has he opened it up to the public, um, you know, in some kind of official capacity for expressive activity? Uh, And and that question is really a a very fact-specific one, which is how has the president used his account? Has he used it like a private person or has he used it as uh, an officer of the United States? Uh, And I think the facts are, are pretty compelling that he's used it as an officer of the United States. Uh, you know just just two days ago his press secretary Sean Spicer said uh, that the White House's uh, uh, tweets are official statements of the president uh, the president uh, uses the account overwhelmingly to discuss matters of public policy uh, his his official decisions uh, he very often for the first time announces uh public policy decisions on twitter yeah. so for example yesterday at, i think it was 444 in the morning and the president announced the uh, uh, nominee for the director of fbi was on his real donald trump twitter account he, he didn't do it on the potus account which is the you know supposedly formal one uh, he didn't do it through a press statement or a briefing he did it on this account okay. um, so i think that i think. It's ultimately a factual question, but I think the facts are are fairly strong.
0: How did this lawsuit come about? Did clients like Holly O'Reilly seek you out, or did you hear about the situation and then volunteer to take action?
1: It it was a bit of a combination. And and, I just want to be clear, it's not not yet a lawsuit. At at this point, we've just filed a letter asking the president to unblock these individuals. Um, And if he doesn't, within a reasonable time, then we'll very seriously consider litigation. You know, but we, I think, along with many other people, had noticed uh, an uptick in the number of people on Twitter complaining about having been blocked mm. by the president. And so we started doing legal research to formulate our views on what we thought about this practice, whether we thought it violated the First Amendment or not. Um, and, you know, we ultimately decided that we thought it did. Uh, and so we started tracking the problem a bit more closely on Twitter and we reached out to several people who uh, had very publicly complained about being blocked to hear their stories, uh, and then decided to put this letter together.
0: Okay, now I've never heard Donald Trump express 100% that he felt he was wrong. Even with the Access Hollywood tape apology, he later went on to brush it off as locker room talk. And I can't imagine he'll voluntarily unblock his critics on Twitter. But Trump's lawyers, even Kellyanne Conway's husband, are not defenders of Trump's Twitter activities. Do you think eventually his lawyers will force him to unblock his Twitter critics?
1: You know, I, th- I think that's as much a, a question of sociology as anything else. And, and and on that, your guess is as good as mine. Um, my personal instinct is the same as yours, that uh, uh, nothing we've seen in the last few months suggests that, you know, the president is likely to, you know, give in to this demand without, you know, without litigation. Um, so but that's a guess. We'll see.
0: So if he does not... What is the next step? Are, are there going to be a number of days within which the Knight First Amendment Institute will file a lawsuit?
1: You know, I, we, we, don't, we haven't you know, set a specific uh, time frame. Uh, you know, our, our, our thought is to allow the White House a reasonable amount of time to respond. Um, you know, Reasonable given that uh, you know, the president has a lot of obligations other than running his Twitter account, and uh, there's a lot else going on. And then to make a decision about whether to file suit, you know, in consultation with, uh, you know, the two people on whose behalf we sent the letter, and 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 likely on uh, in consultation with the many other people who have now reached out to us after having seen the letter to say that they too have been blocked. Um, and if we decide to file suit, the next step would be to file a, a complaint in federal district court. Okay. Um, uh, you know, seeking seeking the unblocking of, of these individuals.
0: Now this still very much relates to your core mission regarding the First Amendment in the digital age, but are some of Donald Trump's more notorious tweets even protected speech? Remember his infamous tweet, how low has President Obama gone to tap, double P, my phones during the very sacred election process? This is Nixon, Watergate, bad or sick guy. Could this be defamation?
1: Well, so, th- so this is where the other principle that I mentioned comes into play, which is that the president is also, uh, you know, a- a- an individual with First Amendment rights. And, uh, you know, the sort of speech he is engaged in on his Twitter account is, you know, often core political speech. Uh, and to hold somebody liable for core political speech, you have to satisfy a very high threshold. Um, you have to show that it's uh, – uh, you know, in this context where he's would be allegedly defaming a public figure, you know, the, the former President Obama, uh, that he made it with a reckless disregard for the truth or knowing that it was false. And that's a very hard thing to demonstrate, and it, and it rightfully is a very hard thing to demonstrate because you don't want to chill, uh, you know, overly chill public discourse about public figures.
0: Okay. But what about his tweet, just arrived in Italy for the G7. Trip has been very successful. We made and saved the U.S. many billions of dollars and millions of jobs. Millions of jobs were not created. Does the First Amendment protect deliberate lies or false statements?
1: Uh, you know, in, in that context... Uh, there's not a specific individual named about whom a false and defamatory fact was stated. Uh, so it's not, you know, nobody would uh, be able to sue and claim that it was defamatory as to them. Uh, given that, you'd have to look for some other, you know, kind of cause of action. Um, and, you know, Congress has not either criminalized or provided some kind of civil cause of action for general falsehoods. Uh, and, and to me, that's a virtue. Um Uh, You know, there's been a lot of focus on on, on fake news recently, but I think it would be a mistake to pass a general law prohibiting falsehoods. Um, You know, there are often circumstances where you want to, where you have very specific harms, you know, fraudulent negotiation of a contract or falsehoods made in the context of, uh, you know, sensitive relationships like an attorney-client relationship or a medical relationship or the like. Uh, But in general civic discourse, you know, lies are ever-present. People lie for all sorts of reasons, uh, big and small. Uh, You know, people lie about their weight. They lie about where they have to be to get out of an obligation they don't want to attend. Uh, They lie to protect other people's feelings. Um, You know, they lie not to disclose sensitive facts about themselves. So there are a lot of reasons why people lie. And so, you know, I'd be very wary about going down the path where we broadly prohibit falsehoods.
0: But do you think it's a different time because of with the technology of Twitter and Facebook and disinformation in trying to have an informed uh, public, an informed electorate to carry out a democracy, um, do you think Twitter and Facebook may have warped the ideals of the First Amendment's role in protecting our democracy? Because I think many people now seem to get their news from these online sources instead of reputable established newspapers. And reputable sources have a core mission of accuracy and providing the best available version of the truth. But people go into these bubbles of confirmation biases and just listen to information they want to hear and believe it, whether it's true or not, and then go and vote. So how do you protect the marketplace of ideas when all this disinformation can get spread and influence people who then go vote on the basis of this disinformation?
1: Yeah, I think it's an excellent, excellent question, and it's one that we are going to have to figure out uh, you know how to solve. I, let, let me take a step back and you know, talk about fake news more broadly, the phenomenon of deliberately false information uh, masquerading as news is, of course, not new. Uh, you know, that ever since we've had the ability to print, we as a species have been printing false things and trying to pass them off as the truth to others. What has changed is that it is now easier than ever to distribute that information very, very quickly uh, on, a, on a broad scale. You can do it yourself broadly, and if you're technically sophisticated, you can uh, employ bots on Twitter or other social media platforms to help your dissemination. That that is a real change, and it's a, um, you know that combines with a couple of other factors, I think, to create the echo chambers that you're talking about. Uh, but I think we should, in the first instance, uh, adjust the you know adjust these online tools uh, to better serve the ends we want them to serve not through legislation, but through experiment with the tools themselves. You know, this is a very new phenomenon. The social media platforms themselves are very new. And I think before rushing to consider uh, legislating, uh, uh, you know, truth commissions, whether in government or in private companies, we should give the technology an opportunity to mature. Uh, So, you know, so what I would like to see uh, is the tech companies really thinking about two problems. One is the problem of echo chambers, which you mentioned, and echo chambers online tend to happen for one of two reasons. Uh, One is because uh, people self-select the communities they want to be inside of uh, and so end up with these very gerrymandered online experiences that reflect only the views that they want to hear. Uh, And so we can start to think about ways that these companies might deliberately expose people to a broader set of views. And the second way in which these echo chambers form online, I think, is based on what the social media platforms themselves uh, prioritize for you, the way that they choose what to show you. And that's almost always based on what gets clicks, not what is true or, or other sorts of metrics. Um, uh, and social media, the companies, I think, start to need to think more creatively about how to prioritize things, especially news items. Uh, You know, it's one thing to rely on uh, crowdsourcing value judgments about what the cutest cat video is or what the funniest joke is. It's quite another to rely on that crowdsourced, you know, uh, algorithmic approach when you're talking about news items. Um, So that's, that's half of the problem, I think, these echo chambers. The other half is that in the real world, we have a lot of measures that we use to uh, judge the trustworthiness of information, you know, because fake news is not new. But up until recently, it happened in the real world almost exclusively in the physical world, and we had ways that we would we would judge it and, and prevent the dissemination of, of fake news. Uh, we would judge the source of the information. We would remember who gave it to us, and uh, uh, you know, try to remember whether we trusted the information the last time or found it uh, reliable the last time. We would look to the reactions of people who we trust. You know, we would outsource our trust determinations to trusted colleagues. Uh, On the online world, we don't have all of those tools. Uh, Up until recently on Facebook, all you could do was either like a post uh, or write a comment that, you know, might be hard for somebody to read quickly to use as a way of judging uh, truth or trustworthiness. Uh, Facebook has, has changed that. They've now added more ways of signaling how any particular person views a news item, Uh, and and maybe that'll help, maybe that will have to explore other ways of, uh, you know, social cues you can relay through Facebook, Uh, but I think we should be looking at these non-legal ways of approaching fake news rather than trying to legislate truth.
0: Okay. Now, for trustworthy news, you are listening to WNHH 103.5 FM, Law, Life, and Culture where Alex Abdo, senior staff attorney at the Knight First Amendment Institute, is taking on Donald Trump's tweets and a whole lot more. Well, Mr. Abdo, you also referred to bots, and Ryan Bort on May 30th in Newsweek reported that half of Donald Trump's 31 million followers are fake and are a result of bots. And A Twitter bot is software that is, in an automated way, something that Uh, tweets, retweets, likes, follows, and unfollows, and people can buy a million account followers on Twitter for just say $400. Bort noted that an unusual number of Trump's followers were tweetless, pictureless accounts, and they joined the service all once in May 2017, um, at least a big block of um, them. So if actually, only he has roughly fifteen million followers. Should there be transparency about this as a public account of the president, so it's not misguiding people as to the opinions in America?
1: Well, I'm not, I'm not sure it's possible to hold the president to that level of transparency because I don't know that the president could determine easily whether any particular followers a bot or not. I, I do think it is fair though. To demand more of Twitter, uh, you know, Twitter has an interest, uh, and Facebook has an interest in preserving the integrity of their platforms. And I think they realize that this is a problem, and they've been trying to, you know, solve it. It turns out it's a hard problem to solve. Uh, uh, my understanding is that creating bots and mass like this is a violation of their terms of service, and so I'm sure they are trying to enforce those terms. Uh, you know, I, I'd be curious to know. How successful they think those efforts are, and how prevalent fake accounts, in fact, are, you know, on, on their service. I don't think we have answers to those sorts of basic questions, uh, but you know, but it's unquestionably a hard problem, um, and I think it's one they're working on. And I, you know, I hope they figure it out.
0: And that does get into the next question I was going to ask you, in that the company Twitter is providing the vehicle for Trump to provide the official voice of the president to the people and allowing Trump to block people. If there were a lawsuit, should Twitter also be a defendant?
1: You know, our our problem is with uh, President Trump, not with Twitter. Uh, You know, the president or one of his aides is the one doing the blocking, uh, and that's the conduct we're challenging, Um, you know, not anything that Twitter is doing. Twitter is within its rights to create this platform, uh, to enable its users to block others, and there are a lot of good reasons why you might block people on Twitter, including, you know, the very real problem of online harassment. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so we're certainly not challenging or wouldn't challenge, uh, you know, the way Twitter has set up its platform, uh, but it is fair to hold a public official to account. Uh, you know, In the same way when a public official rents out a private space uh, and then makes decisions about who can be there and who can't be, you can hold the public official accountable for those decisions, uh, but you wouldn't hold the private space, the person renting out the, the venue, accountable.
0: Now the Knight Institute is also working to protect people from governmental searches of electronic devices at the borders. Such searches are a disturbing concept for anyone who frequently travels internationally. The government argues this is part of the extreme vetting needed to help keep America safe from terrorists. Shortly after 9-11, many people seemed very willing to give up their privacy for heightened security. Is there any evidence that the compromise of privacy rights has kept our country safer?
1: I, I don't think there is at that level of generality. Um, you know, one of the major shifts in uh, focus following 9/11 for the intelligence agencies was from targeted surveillance to bulk surveillance. You know, one of the very first things that uh, Ed Snowden disclosed to reporters, and and uh, that was later disclosed by those reporters to the public, was that the NSA had been collecting the nation's call records in bulk uh, for many, many years. And this is one of the most studied forms of surveillance post-9-11, which is why I think it's relevant to look at. Uh, And there were two review groups who studied that program, this this program of bulk collection, and both concluded that uh, uh, bulk collection contributed nothing to the Intelligence community's ability to uh, prevent terrorism, uh, and you know that's because uh, bulk surveillance is ultimately not good at preventing uh, preventing attacks. Now, of course, after the fact, after something has gone wrong, uh, if you have all of the information in the world already collected, it, that's helpful. Uh, uh, but before the fact, you still need to know where to direct your investigative eye. You know what to look at, what to um, Uh, you know what to investigate who to study who to question and on those sorts of decisions uh, bulk collection uh, is not helpful
0: okay but even with the nsa surveillance some people took the attitude that look i'm not doing anything wrong and so what some anonymous guy in dc or wherever is reading my emails i'll never meet him i'll never know so if this Even if not prevents another 9 11, but even assists in the prosecution of uh, terrorists, I guess I don't really care if people are, or the government is uh, snooping in on me in that way. From your perspective as a former ACLU attorney, why do you disagree with that logic?
1: Yeah, I think I have two responses to that logic. Uh, The first is that I'm not sure I agree that people really. Uh, have nothing to hide when they say they have nothing to hide. Um, you know, I have encountered that argument before, and I've often asked people who say it to me to give me their Gmail passwords or to give me their social security numbers, and nobody has yet taken me up on that offer. Um, I mean, I think the fact of the matter is that people do care about their privacy. Uh, you know, everyone values different things differently. Some people think uh, one thing is more private than another, and that's you know that's not surprising. But uh, I think we all have a core conception. Of privacy that we don't want to share. We, you know, we we have curtains for a reason. Um, we wear clothes for a reason. We, uh, we we tell friends. We present ourselves one way to our friends and differently to our work colleagues. Uh, that's what it means to be human: is fundamentally to decide uh, what information is is yours and what information you share with others. The second, and, and maybe you know, more importantly, uh, in a way, is that uh, it is true that majorities political majorities generally have little to fear of, uh, less to fear of their government than political minorities. So if you are in a political majority, it's less likely that you are going to be the subject of uh, an investigation or even an unlawful investigation. But if you're a political minority, uh, if you are a person of color in this country, if you are a journalist, uh, if you are a political dissident, you're much more likely to be subject to uh, law enforcement investigations or surveillance. And for those people, uh, the fact of broad surveillance matters tremendously, uh, because it makes their work harder. It discourages them from doing uh, uh, the important work that they're doing. And so even if you and the majority uh, uh, think you don't value your privacy, I hope you value uh, the importance of having a society open enough to allow Those political minorities to go about their work. Um, I think that's what the First Amendment was about. That's what the Fourth Amendment uh, was about, Uh, and and, you know that's why uh, so many of us are fighting for those those freedoms.
0: In addition, I think the electronic service um, searches at the border take on a different dimension in that it's a violation where there seems to be more overt intimidation, at least from the news accounts that I've read, and you see the face of the person who takes away your cell phone or searches your cell phone or laptop. Do you see another difference in terms of fundamental rights violated? in? comparing this with the NSA massive sweeping up of electronic data and the demanding of passwords to access people's personal devices
1: you know they're different programs but you know I, I actually don't see a huge difference between the sort of faceless surveillance that the you know that uh, that comes to mind when you think of NSA surveillance and the face-to-face surveillance uh, that happens at the border um, you know I, I think it's it's instinctive and natural for people to tend to fear more surveillance that they can see uh, because there's this idea that if you know who's looking at your private information if you can see them and look them in the eye somehow it's more invasive Uh, but i'm not sure that's actually true um you know that that uh, immigration authority bureaucrat who's reviewing your cell phone at the border and asking you invasive questions you might be one of a hundred people they see that day, a thousand people they see in a, in a, a two-week period. Uh, you know they will very quickly forget your private information, uh, but we still feel as though we're violated in that instance. Uh, and I think we should similarly feel as though our privacy is violated when uh, the government is, uh, you know, uh, searching through our data in an electronic way, you know, either through computers or otherwise, uh, because the harm. You know, there, there are many harms to surveillance, but uh, the one that is most insidious for democracy uh, is it the ability of surveillance to, uh, to discourage uh, difference, to enforce a kind of conformity through, uh, through observation. Uh, that, I think, is what closes open societies, and, you know, that is the fundamental concern about overreaching surveillance. Okay. And that, I think, can happen whether you can see the person watching you uh, or you can't see them.
0: Now, can you update me on where we are with the NSA massive sweeping up of electronic data can this still occur without warrants
1: it can, you know it can the NSA has a lot of different surveillance authorities the one I was describing earlier the bulk collection of call records that authority is now ended yeah uh, uh, when, you know when I was at the ACLU I was part of a team of lawyers uh, uh that litigated a lawsuit that found that practice unconstitutional, sorry, not unconstitutional, but illegal under, yeah. under statute. Uh, and Congress ended the program a few weeks after that. Uh, but the NSA has a lot of authorities, it turns out. And a number of those allow warrantless acquisition of Americans communications. One of those laws is actually set to expire at the end of this year. It's called, uh, the FISA amendments act or section 702 of FISA, which is, um, Allows the NSA to collect Americans' international communications without a warrant, okay. uh, and there's going to be a debate in Congress uh, about what should happen. Uh, this was actually one of the authorities that I believe um, President Trump thought had been used against him. Uh, uh, so, you know, it, it is a very important uh, uh, it's a very important authority in that it allows very very broad surveillance uh, with you know fairly minimal. Restraints, um, and you know we're, we're hoping that uh, uh, there will be appropriate narrowing of it in the legislative debate to come.
0: Okay, now on Wednesday, June seventh, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that police need a warrant to search cell phones of people arrested. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that cell phones are not just technological conveniences, but hold private information for many Americans. He noted it's far different than searching your pockets. How does this affect your case about searching cell phones and laptops at the border upon entering the U.S.?
1: Yeah, well, this was a tremendously important ruling. Uh, this was, you know, called Riley versus California from I think about two years ago, and uh, it's important for a number of reasons. One is that it it recognized the basic principle of that. Uh, Our rights, as they were defined in the analog era, uh, need to be updated when we apply them in the digital one, Uh, because the government in that case was arguing, uh, we have the general authority to search somebody when we arrest them, uh, and we can search their wallet, we can search their pockets, we can search their car, uh, and now that they're carrying a cell phone, we can search their cell phone too, all without a warrant. And the Supreme Court said, no, 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 no. You can search a wallet. You can search the. You can search their car, but a phone is a different animal. A phone holds so much more information of such a greater sensitivity uh, that you need to justify that warrantless uh, that 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 exception to the warrant requirement on its own grounds. You can't rely on this analog era precedent. And they ultimately said, uh, and we don't buy your argument that we should extend it. Uh, and. Uh, uh, the very same thing uh, can and, and I think should be said about searches of cell phones at the border. Um, in that context, uh, the government has made a very similar argument. They have said searches at the border have historically been allowed to take place without a warrant. If somebody is coming across the border with a lot of photographs or a journal or um, you know packages or luggage. We can search through all of that without a warrant, and so now they're carrying cell phones, and we can search those too. Uh, and we think the same logic uh, should apply uh, as in this uh, uh, cell phone search case uh, that 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 you were reading from. Uh, that cell phones are different. Uh, people carry uh, so much information on their cell phones, more than you know, almost more private information than they store within their homes. These days, they carry on their phones. Uh, and to allow the government to rummage through that information without a warrant, uh, without even reasonable suspicion, uh, represents, I think, a grave uh, you know, loophole into our, 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 our right to privacy.
0: Sure. Are these electronic searches at the border, all without warrants, subject to the agent's discretion?
1: Yes. Uh, CBP, this, the uh, uh, cus- you know, uh, Border Protection, uh, Customs and Border Protection, has a directive that allows it to search the cell phones of anyone crossing the border uh, without any suspicion whatsoever based on their discretionary determination at the moment. Uh, and they can even uh, hold on to your cell phone for a period of days or longer if they get extensions. Uh, they can copy your data off of it wholesale and search that data for as long as, as they deem necessary. Um, uh, and they can later disseminate that information if, if, they decide that they have reason to. For example, if they find evidence of a crime or something like that.
0: Okay. What, uh, you know, my understanding. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, um. Oh, oh was that you also referenced, I believe, the uptick in the number of searches at the border. And my understanding is um, it is the Customs Border Patrol and the CBP that you referenced, and ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, both part of the Department of Homeland Security, that are making these searches. And that there has been an increase in warrantless searches of electronic devices um, at the border Ron Nixon reported in April in the New York Times that there has been a surge in electronic searches, nearly 15,000 from October 2016 to March 2017, compared to 8,383 in the same period straddling 2015 and 2016. And in the same article, the agency uh, officials responded that electronic searches were less than 1% of the one... 189.6 189.6 million travelers that arrived in the United States. So, I guess two questions. Why do you think there is this uptick in the number of searches? I think 9 11 is now getting to be, you know, further away in time as opposed to uh, more uh, pending or, or posing a more immediate threat. Why the uptick in searches, and how do you respond to the uh, res- uh, governments claiming that it's just a very, very less than 1% of 189.6 million travelers.
1: Sure. So on the first question, the reality is that we don't know what accounts for the uptick. You know, my guess is that uh, now that CBP and ICE have this authority, that they're developing the technical capability to exercise that authority more and more. Um, you know, it takes time to search a cell phone. It takes time to make a copy of the data on it so you can search it later on. Um, you know, it takes technical capacity to do those things. And my guess is that they are, uh, that they are very, very quickly ramping up that technical capacity. Uh, uh, and, you know, it, uh, it may be that their end goal is to be able to search as many phones as possible crossing the border. Uh, you know, it, uh, some have said that one of the things they do when they search these phones uh, is scan all of the contacts on the phones uh, to, to create a kind of associational web to see who you're uh, who you associate with and compare that and, and compare that to their own databases of persons of interest and the like uh, and if they could do that for everyone I'm sure they would uh, it's just a matter of, of technological capability um, okay. uh, you know and, that, and that's in part what frightens me so much about the warrantless nature of the surveillance is that if you allow CBP the authority to do it without any justification whatsoever, then the only protection is really one of technical ability. Uh, because if if the day comes, when the day comes, that uh, CBP uh, uh, can very quickly plug your phone into a into a wire on their, you know, the desk where they look at your passport um, and then quickly copy all the data and then have you go on, uh, they'll do that for everyone. Um, so that, that's an answer to your first question. In answer to the second, uh, you know, it is a small percentage at the moment. It appears to be a rapidly growing number. Uh, I worry that the numbers will get very large at some point, uh, but that even even though not large now in a, in terms of percentage, <clears throat> uh, the effect seems to be large. You know, you have to remember that uh, the communities that tend to get surveilled. Uh, are the same communities that have almost always been those being surveilled, namely communities of color uh, and communities that are in the political minority. Uh, and that is almost certainly the case for CBP searches as well. Uh, uh, you know, they, they likely fall on the same kind of political minorities that uh, law enforcement and national security surveillance is tr- you know traditionally targeted. Uh, and that casts a chill, I think, on those who are traveling across the border and are from those communities, um, including journalists, including uh, you know, political dissidents and the like.
0: The government has also said that such searches fight terrorism, child pornography, and human trafficking. What is your response to that defense of such searches?
1: Well, I, I want the government uh, serving those interests. I want the government conducting surveillance and investigations to, to fight terrorism and the like. Uh, But I want them to do it in a targeted way. And I think they can do it in a targeted way consistently with their mission. Uh, You know, you can always say uh, that uh, just give us the authority to do all of our searches without a warrant and that'll make it easier to do our jobs. You could say that about house searches. Uh, And I guarantee you if you gave the FBI or local law enforcement the authority to raid every house they wanted without a warrant, I guarantee you they would find crime, Uh, but that's not the question. That's not how you measure uh, effectiveness. That's not how you measure uh, the balance between law enforcement authority and individual liberty. Uh, You know, the the debate has to be a slightly more nuanced one than that. You have to ask what is necessary for law enforcement to be able to do its job and what is consistent with our principles and values. Uh, And I think on both of those uh, metrics, warrantless surveillance fails. I don't think the CBP needs the authority to engage in warrantless, suspicionless surveillance uh, to find wrongdoers. uh, And allowing them that is certainly inconsistent with our, you know, what we value when it comes to privacy.
0: No, there are several news articles on the Knight Institute website in the section, why is the government searching cell phones? Katie Fellows links to several cases in which a NASA scientist, a Wall Street Journal reporter, a French-American photojournalist, and an electronic salesman, amongst others, had their cell phones searched at the border, and all were American citizens. With a U.S. citizen, generally, are there greater protections against searches than with non-citizens?
1: Well, I wouldn't break it down by citizen or not. You know, Typically, the Fourth Amendment applies to uh, citizens or, or those in the country. Uh, so, if you know, you're, if you're in the U.S., um, uh, you are generally protected by the Fourth Amendment, whether you're a citizen or not. Uh, there, there may be circumstances even where you're, uh, you know, a foreigner abroad, and, you, and there may be some protections that apply to you. Um, uh, so, you know, it's a slightly more complicated question than just citizenship or not.
0: Okay, but I guess that is one thing I understand that the Knight Institute is looking at because my understanding is the Knight Institute under a Freedom of Information Act FOIA request asked for information concerning electronic device searches including the CPB and ICE policies and practices, the number of US citizens, permanent residents, green card holders, gender, race, ethnicity, nationality, country of birth, and numbers of travelers on watch lists or other selective status in counting, I guess, tabulating these searches, is there evidence um, that people are, for example, suffering from discrimination due to race, religion, citizenship, country of birth, or those other factors in the FOIA request?
1: There have been some Anecdotal complaints that uh, the people being stopped are being selected for discriminatory reasons. Uh, I I don't have any verification of that. Um, and part of the reason that we filed the request that you are describing is to get the statistics relating to who's being selected, so that we can get a better understanding of whether those complaints are are justified. Uh, we don't know. Okay. Um, uh, you know that that's why we want want these statistics and. You know, there was an internal study at CBP in 2011 uh, that resulted in uh, in the drafting uh, of a report, you know, an internal uh, civil rights assessment of how CBP was engaging in these device searches at the border. Um, And uh, you know, they recommended that CBP start tracking these numbers better to enable just this sort of oversight. And and so that's what we're hoping to get uh, are those numbers.
0: Is it your intention to then make public the findings so they can be used for any public or private purposes, for example, in other litigation with the appeal and the travel ban, Muslim ban case?
1: Absolutely. Uh, You know, any sort of information that we try to dislodge from government, uh, you know, we plan to make public.
0: Also, the Knight Knight Institute has filed a lawsuit which would require the Trump administration to provide logs of the visitors to the White House and Trump's private properties in Florida and New York in which the president has repeatedly conducted business. This would include dates and the persons who requested the clearance. Can you explain what this case is about and why it is a First Amendment issue?
1: Sure. So, you know, the, the, the case is uh, just what you described. You know, we, uh, we are after the logs of those who are visiting uh, the president. Um, president Obama was uh, the first to establish a policy for the disclosure of, of these logs. And during his presidency, he would release them periodically, you know, with a three or four month delay. Uh, and he would uh, – Exclude from them certain private meetings uh, uh, or meetings that might implicate uh, concerns about national security or the like. Or, for example, if he were, uh, you know, if he were interviewing a handful of judges for appointments and he didn't want people to know who he was interviewing, so they wouldn't, um, you know, start to figure out who he might select, he would exclude those. Uh, and and that was a, a great policy. It gave Americans a very unique insight into who exercised influence over, uh, you know, the most, the most powerful office in our country. Uh, and many stories were written based on those logs. There were a lot of interesting um, studies based on uh, how visiting the White House affected the profitability of companies, for example. There's a very interesting study I just saw a couple days ago, um, you know, about that correlation. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had hoped that President Trump would continue that policy. Uh, he announced, uh, I think about two months ago now, or maybe three months ago, that he wasn't going to continue that policy, that he was not going to release the logs. Uh, and so we've now uh, filed suit to try to force disclosure uh, under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, and, and the reason why it's uh, important is that it uh, it's a form of uh, structural transparency. Um, you know, the, the, the public needs... A baseline amount of information about its government, in order to meaningfully uh, govern itself, uh, in order to make informed electoral decisions, informed decisions about policy, the public needs information. Uh, you know, that's where the first—that's that was one of the First Amendment's highest aspirations—was to assure that the public has the information it needs to govern itself. Uh, and we think this is is information of that sort is information about who wields influence over you know, our, our highest elected official. Uh, you know, and, and we think the public should continue to have access to that information.
0: Okay. You know, unfortunately, we're running out of time. So as my last question, I'd like to ask, which Knight Institute matter of the ones we discussed in our conversation today, are you hopeful we'll have the greatest long-term effects in terms of our First Amendment rights that support our democracy?
1: Well, that's so hard to choose. I, I, I think just because it's been on my mind and I've been thinking about it so much the past couple days, I'll say the one we started with, um, You know, the question of how our free speech rights apply online, it, is so enormously consequential for public discourse and free speech, uh, you know. And I'm I'm excited that we're starting to think about some of the very hard questions uh, related to that.
0: Well, thank you very much, Alex Abdo, senior staff attorney at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. It was a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And you. Can-